an Air Canada Boeing 767, a brand new airplane, is on a flight from Montreal to Edmonton, Canada, with a stopover in Ottawa. What caused this plane to not make it to its final destination? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today... We have... The one. The only. <laughs> Brendan. I tried. Thank you. I just want to point that out. <laughs> and he completely ignored me. Well, you didn't, you didn't go anywhere from there. We'll you do. were supposed to say your name. I don't like saying my name. Okay, well, there's your problem. Hello to Julian, our new... Patron. Yes, thank you, Julian. Yes, that. Any housekeeping since uh two days ago? No. Submit your favorite aviation stories for May, or weather stories because we didn't have enough for last month. Or whatever stories. Just so. submit a story. Yeah. We like reading your stuff. Yeah. We we liked the one month where it wasn't entirely David, and we would like that to continue. <laughs> yeah, I love David's stories. He is so good at telling stories. We just need to share our flying adventures, Nick. Yeah. Whenever I go flying with you, it's, it's way more very exciting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, whenever you go flying with us, it's really boring. Oh, it's so boring. Yeah. It's calm, air, and... Everything goes according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's up with that? Yeah. We, we decided in replacement of our April listener story, the three of us will talk about our Houston to Atlanta to here adventure. Mm. Just to fill it. Yeah. Cool beans. Cool beans. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick? Ah, there we go. Okay. So today we are covering Air Canada Flight 143, also known as the Gimli Glider. Thank you to our patrons, Chris, Helen, and Kate, all for recommending this incident. Yes. Thanks. So this is the Gimli Glider. Very, very famous incident. And if you don't know it, oh boy, you're in for a ride. This happened on July the 23rd of 1983. So this was a Boeing 767-200 with the tail number Charlie-Golf Alpha Uniform November. It was brand new. Yeah, this was brand new aircraft type to the world as well as to Air Canada. This was one of only four in their fleet at the time, and this one only had 150 hours flown on it so far. Legit. Yeah. The scheduled flight today was from Montreal to Ottawa to Edmonton. Canada. So, Canada. so miserable in Canada. <laughs> Why? Why? Because all those places just sound cold. It's because they are this cold. This is July. It's probably like Man, 90 I'm sure degrees. It's, I'm sure it's fine. Like, good for you, Canada. You have some <laughs> warm times of the year. But <laughs> just... All of these places are not much further north than New York. Still all, further north, though. All our Canadian listeners are going to come at us so hard. <laughs> I like I like the Canada area region of the world. So, I mean, it's cold, though. Yeah. It is that generally. I make good sentences. Yep. Yeah. I English good, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the captain for the flight was Bob Pearson. He had around 15,000 hours, which is quite a lot. First officer was Maurice Quintel. He, he had around 7,000 hours. This was a very nice day to fly, this day. The flight from Montreal to Ottawa was uneventful and very pleasant. The flight to Edmonton was to have 61 passengers and 8 crew on an airplane that can hold about 300 people. So not very many when you're talking 69 people. Because you're going to Edmonton. Yes, from Ottawa. The flight departed Edmonton and climbed out normally eventually reaching a cruising altitude of a whopping 41,000 feet, or flight level 410. The airplane was fully capable of this, and this is higher than most airliners at the time. Almost any other airliner had ever flown, so that's pretty impressive. I think we've really only covered one other flight that went that high. Yes, one very in particular that got to that height for a very particular reason that didn't go well. Hashtag Pinnacle Airlines. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to talk about this one getting to that altitude, but that actually doesn't have anything to do with it. An Air Canada maintenance technician was traveling with his family on board for a trip, and he went to the cockpit mid-flight to see all the new features on the new plane. 
he was really intrigued because new to the airline, this airplane was new to the airline, and it's like, ooh, shiny, new. I want to touch it. When did this happen again? 1983. Okay. Just putting it into perspective timeline-wise. Yes. Also timeline-wise, putting it into perspective, this is a month after Air Canada Flight 797. Mm. The uh, toilet fire. The toilet fire. So, yeah. yeah. He and the flight crew discussed the new features for some time, ooing and eyeing over the airplane's features, including, ooh, full-color instruments that are digitalized. Fancy. Wow. Digital. Yes, digital and full color. Wow. A short time later, while the three of them were still discussing the airplane, an alarm began sounding. What did that sound like? Meh, 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 meh. Take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> it was just after 8 p.m. local time in summer daylight in clear skies in cruising flight at 41,000 feet. So. Things rarely happen at cruising altitude. What's wrong? <laughs> This seems I'll, a I'll tell you what's wrong later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> once you know more. <laughs> well, I know more. Yes, but... But once you, as the listener, knows know more. more. Yes. The captain looked up and saw the flashing light on the overhead panel that indicated that the fuel pressure was low in one of the left fuel pumps. The crew were concerned, but they were figuring it was probably just a bad fuel pump. Nothing more. The new digital fuel gauges had been written up and labeled as inoperative for the flight, and so they were just blank, as they had been for the whole flight. Solid. Yeah. (laughs) They discussed with the maintenance technician in the cockpit who told them his thoughts. His thoughts were that this was either a bad pump or low fuel flowing through the pump. The airplane has three fuel tanks, the main tank in the center, the main tank on the right, and the main tank on the left. So you have a right, center, and left tank. Pretty simple. So one in the right wing, one in the left wing, one in the belly. Air Canada at the time did not use the center tank, as they did not have any long routes with the airplane yet. These were all shorter routes in Canada. A short time later, both left fuel pressure sensors indicated low pressure. So both pumps were indicating low pressure. Not good. How dare they? Yeah, I know. The captain almost immediately decided in that moment to divert. He told the first officer to inform the air traffic control that they would be diverting to Winnipeg. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to turn direct to Winnipeg and descend to 6,000 feet at their discretion. They were only about 120 miles away from Winnipeg at the time, which was pretty close, and there was a main maintenance base for Air Canada there, so seemed like a pretty reasonable option. The captain commenced the descent. Seconds later... Both of the right side fuel pumps began indicating low fuel pressure as well. Also, not a good sign. All of your fuel pumps seem to be having a low fuel pressure warning. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, That's like you didn't refill. We'll get there. The flight crew then instructed the cabin crew by phone to prepare for an emergency landing at Winnipeg. Seconds later, the left engine failed Uh and shut down. Hmm, I wonder why. I wonder why. I'm sure you're probably catching on here pretty rapidly. The captain requested the single engine landing checklist be read by the first officer. (laughs) Sorry. Are you you good? I'm good. (laughs) Okay. Because you only fly a single engine? Well, no, because that's pointless. (laughs) Sorry. Fair enough. But they had that checklist, so they performed it. The cabin crew began prepping the cabin for an emergency landing, handling things very professionally. They informed the passengers that they would be making an emergency landing in Winnipeg and instructed them on what to expect, including bracing and evacuation. As the flight crew were still running the single-engine landing checklist, suddenly, the right engine failed Told you and that shut down. was useless. Well, yeah, especially when it's a single engine and you don't have one. What's... Can we get the zero-engine checklist out? Uh, turns out they don't have one of those. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yep. And they weren't trained for it. Yep. At that moment, simultaneously, all of the nice new electronic instruments in the cockpit went dark. And so did the cabin. Oh, that's great. Yep, because it turns out those things are run on the generators in the the engines. engines. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Yep. Did they have a rat? Getting there. Yes. (laughs) At the time, the airplane was descending through 26,500 feet, and they were still 75 miles from Winnipeg. At that time, the flight crew told the air traffic controller 
that they had lost both engines. This was the first time the air traffic controller realized the gravity of the situation and went, "Uh uh-oh. This is something that had not been taught in simulators, and there was no checklist for, and it is seen as next to impossible for it to even happen, let alone have to perform this type of flying in an airliner. When interviewed in the Air Disasters episode, the air traffic controller said something along the lines of, oh, I'm talking to a dead man. Pretty much. That's horrifying. You don't know that. He believed they were talking to a dead man because this had never gone well in the past. Yeah, but that's a, aren't you like cutting the chase a little faster? We'll talk about that. That's what just his first initial thought. Yes, probably didn't say that to them on the microphone. Well, no, I'm sure not. not. I'm sure hey, not. I think you're dead. Yeah. What? Goodbye. <laughs> I'm. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that wasn't <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> so not. <sighs> One indication that there was still some planning somewhere along the line that this might actually be a possibility on a seven six seven was the fact that the airplane had a rat and that deployed. Which stands for Ram Air Turbine. Yep. It is a Ram Air Turbine, and this Ram Air Turbine allowed power to critical instruments and systems only, mainly the hydraulic systems, in order to control the flight control surfaces. Do you you want to explain what exactly it is? So a rat... Isn't it just like a little thing that comes out at the bottom that rotates so you can get electricity? Yes, so basically it's a uh, spring-propelled... wind turbine that goes down into the slipstream below the belly of the airplane and then it uses the slipstream and the air moving past it to generate power as well as hydraulics so so we actually have an opposite problem from last week last week we had no hydraulics and just engines this one has no engines but some hydraulics there you go it also allows you i think it has put the instrument display back up doesn't it? yes it it does allow them some amount of instruments and powers of radio stuff like that correct One other major stroke of luck. The captain used to be a glider pilot. As a matter of fact, for quite some time, he was a very experienced glider pilot. And he was now flying a very large glider. Also very lucky. It's not really designed for that. No, it's not. However, it is designed to collide some distance. It is not designed to gain altitude while gliding, though. So, just to specify, the plane doesn't just drop out of the sky when it loses engines. Be- right. Because of the shape of the wing, the airfoil, as it is called, yes. it still has some ability to remain aloft. Right. And typically with a glider, your wingspan is so much bigger than you would see on a 767 that you can actually use wind currents to your advantage to actually climb in an actual glider. This plane is just a little too heavy to be dealing with wind currents. It's also usually moving faster than most wind currents. So... The airplane's just dropping. Dropping slower than it would if it were a brick, but dropping. The air traffic controller then informed the crew that they were lo- that they had lost the airplane from their radar. This was because their transponder was no longer functioning in the airplane, because it's electrical and it didn't work. And right. it's not powered by the rat. Right. The air traffic controller then worked to get their primary radar working, which uses traditional ping, a traditional pinging system to track large objects in the sky. So a transponder usually just transmits a signal directly to the tower from the airplane that says, here I am, and this is where we're at with altitude, speed, who we are, all these things. It even gives specific codes to allow the air traffic controllers to kind of individualize yeah, the identify. airplane. Yeah, what they're doing, those kinds of things. Um, in this case, they're switching to a primary radar system, which literally just gives them a dot. Nothing more. That is kind of accurate. Yes. It pretty much tells them something's there in the sky at that point. Don't know how high. Don't know how fast. Which direction. Yep. Or None of that. it is. Who they is. So, yeah. They're switching to a pretty primitive system, but it will help them at least see the airplane, which is important. For a time, the only thing that the air traffic controllers knew was that they were somewhere east of Winnipeg. Meanwhile, the first officer was calculating their glide angle and glide distance, but this was proving to be difficult because of the NOP instruments, which would have helped them kind of figure that out. The air traffic controller also could not calculate their glide distance because, well, they didn't have enough information since the transponder was out. With the primary radar up and running, the air traffic controller was able to see the airplane's location, but nothing else. This was still valuable. Because at the time, the plane was 65 miles from Winnipeg, but only 45 miles from Gimli. Gimli, so you have Winnipeg to the south and Gimli to the north. 
Gimli's now an option because it's closer than Winnipeg. They basically had one chance to make their decision whether to go north or south, because they're flying east to west. So they have to make a turn no matter what, and it's going to be one direction or the other, and they can't turn around and go the other direction. They don't have the time. The first officer suggested that they divert to Gimli, since it was closer, and he was familiar with it, as he had trained there when he was in the military. And he was aware that it had a long runway, 7,200 feet as a matter of fact, which would be helpful on landing. Gimli was a decommissioned airbase at the time of the incident, however, and what the crew was not aware of was that the runway had been partially turned into a drag strip. Uh-oh. And this is a nice Saturday afternoon. Yeah. So everyone's on the drag strip. The captain requested info from ATC about Gimli. The air traffic controller informed them that they did not have a tower at the airport and that the airport had no emergency services. Pretty bleak. <laughs> the obvious preferred choice was Winnipeg because of the emergency services, the maintenance services, all these things. It just seems like a better option. In the cabin, the passengers were writing wills and love letters because they had been told that they were going to make an emergency landing. And also, the engines aren't working, and they can tell. It's real quiet. Yes, it does. Very I've... similar to our the British Airways flight that we covered that yes. lost all engines. I've yeah, heard British it is... Airways flight 9. Yeah. Yep. I've heard it's like an eerie silent. Ugh. Completely silent, and even though it's you like know space. you're moving wicked fast. Just hear the wind. And... Yep. The air traffic controller then requested the number of souls on board. This is typical of any incident. The crew was flustered, having to deal with a myriad of stressful issues, and in the midst of this, the first officer gave the air traffic controller the wrong number of souls on board, stating 33 instead of the actual 69. The plane was not full either way, as it carries around 300 people, so either way, this wasn't going to be the biggest incident ever, but this could be bad. Well, they want those numbers for... They need to know how many people they're searching for. Right, yeah. Yes. However, the air traffic controller did state, at least it's not going to be 300 people. Right. Which is kind of a terrible thought. But... Uh, a little bit. But also, I can see why he would say that. Yes. They. Is it he? He. As the airplane was crossing through 8,500 feet, the crew was able to see Winnipeg as they were 35 miles out. But the first officer quickly calculated and gave the captain the bad news. They only had about 20 miles of glide left. So they wouldn't make it to Winnipeg. They were only 12 miles from Gimli at the time. The captain made the final decision. They were going to Gimli. Hmm. The air traffic controller gave them a right turn to 345 degrees and told them that they had 10 miles to fly from that point. The maintenance guy, who by the way was still in the cockpit for all of this up to this point, <laughs> went back to see his family and be with his family for the rest of the descent. He comforted his family and assured them that it would be okay, knowing full well what the gravity of the situation actually was, which is that this has never been pulled off well. Once they completed their right turn toward Gimli, the captain called for the gear to be lowered. The landing gear could not be lowered with hydraulics, however, so the first officer performed the gravity drop procedure for the gear instead. The main landing gear below the wings dropped without issue and locked into place audibly in the cockpit. They could hear the thud. It locked. They had two green lights, but not a third. The nose gear did not drop, and the first officer did not tell the captain. He felt that this was not pertinent information during the stressful situation, as, well, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Par for the course. He's already dealing with a lot. It's like, well, that's just going to be another thing. Oh, well. As they were five miles out, the crew were able to see the airfield, and they realized that they were approaching too high, too steep, and too fast especially since they couldn't use the air brakes or the flaps in their current situation. So we're dealing with another airplane that's in a less than ideal situation for an approach. They had to choose between two options, do a 360 degree turn to lose speed and altitude or perform a different risky maneuver for an airliner. The first officer quickly realized that they were descending at 2,500 foot per minute and only had 3,000 feet left to the ground. So if they performed that turn, which would take about three minutes, they would never make it. Mm. They would hit the ground. They would instead have to perform a side slip. Ah, uh, I was going to say a slip. Yep. Wasn't a slip. forward slip at that point? They said side slip. Mm. Everywhere. Mm. This is almost never performed on an airliner. As a matter of fact, 
basically never before this. However, this was a maneuver that the captain was very familiar with and comfortable performing as he had to do it many, many times as a glider pilot. Because gliders typically come in too high and too fast. (laughs) So this is one major way of correcting that. The maneuver involves crossing the controls, turning the ailerons one direction while pushing the rudders the opposite direction with your feet. So you will put the airplane into this odd maneuver. You'll also push the the stick forward so that the airplane's pointing down. It puts the airplane into this really precarious-looking maneuver. However, it uses the fuselage, basically, to create drag. It makes the airplane drop quickly as it loses lift over the wings. However, it doesn't speed up or slow down in any major way. It's also been known as crabbing. Yes. We had to extent. do a slip when we landed in Sterling. Yep. Yeah. It's a, it is an odd maneuver. I was too high and too fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's an odd maneuver, but it works really, really effectively. This was a heavy maneuver, however, and the first officer noted that he was looking straight at the ground out of the side window of the cockpit. <laughs> this also uh, definitely put the uh, passengers a little less than at ease when you're getting close to the ground and you're staring out the window at the ground. Meanwhile, on the ground, there were no races currently happening at the drag strip, but it was family day at the track with lots of people camping, grilling, and mingling along the track side. Two kids had decided to bike the length of the track since nobody was currently using it, and they were on their way back when the unexpected happened. The passengers on the plane were told to brace as the plane touched down on the runway hard. Then the nose slammed down hard, because the captain didn't know, sounding like a gun going off in the cockpit. It was at that moment that the kids on the bikes looked back and realized that there was a large airplane quickly coming at them at about 200 miles an hour. And they had not heard them previously because there's no engines. Yep, there's no engines, so they they were gliding in silently. This is why we should install airplanes with horns. <laughs> yeah, that was actually what they said in the air crash investigation episode. They were like, because it turns out airplanes don't have horns. <laughs> so, yeah, there was nothing to make noise with. Not until the airplane was scraping the tarmac. The left side of the fuselage suddenly impacted the guardrail that ran, that ran down the middle of the runway, separating the two sides of the track. This, coupled with the collapsed landing gear on the nose, caused the airplane to slow down much more rapidly than normal. The airplane came to a stop, and the kids had managed to bike away. They didn't make it all the way to the end of the runway, where everybody actually was, thankfully. The crew quickly called for an evacuation of the airplane, especially since the front of the, of the cabin and the cockpit were beginning to fill with smoke from somewhere unknown. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Oh, probably just scraping metal against concrete. Yeah, that's yeah. usually part of it. The, fr- the flight crew quickly performed the evacuation checklist, and the cabin crew began opening the doors to release the slides. Passengers began evacuating from all of the exits. However, because the plane was leaning forward onto the nose, the tail was high, and people evacuating from the rear had to deal with a sizable drop from the bottom of the slide to oh the ground. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> yeah, not exactly a fun time. This caused a few minor injuries to the passengers. However, all people on board managed to evacuate without any major injuries, and nobody perished in this incident, which is unheard of for a dual engine failure. It's incredible. And a quote-unquote dead stick landing on an airliner. Yeah, but that plane is not... We'll talk about it, actually, because (laughs) there's something you don't know yet. Oh, okay. Well... The people at the track began rushing to help the passengers of the plane. The flight crew and the people at the track were using fire extinguishers to try to stop the smoke, which was caused by a fire in the insulation between the outer skin of the airplane and the inner walls. And all of these drag racers keep fire extinguishers. extinguishers. So they're like, grab them, grab them, grab them. Yep. And they rushed out there and helped. This was, needless to say, one incredible incident because everybody survived. And this airplane literally was a glider from 41,000 feet down. That's crazy. Yeah, it's unheard of. So needless to say, you might know what happened. The engine stopped. Yes, thank you. Because there wasn't enough fuel. So this investigation was performed by a court of inquiry appointed for the incident. Which is strange. I'm kind of unclear as to why this was, because they did have an aviation accident investigation board that 
preceded today's Transportation Safety Board of Canada. If anyone knows why this was, let me know. I'm curious. I couldn't find anything on it. Anyway, the investigation began promptly after the dust settled, and investigators were able to confirm that the tanks were dry. They drained what little was left and came out to about 17 gallons of fuel from a plane that should be able to carry (laughs) almost 24,000 gallons. Why was it so low? I will explain. Because that is an interesting thing. How much fuel does a 67 burn? Per hour? Yeah. More than 17 gallons. (laughs) Obviously, I'm just wondering how far they could have made it with that 17 gallons of fuel. To Gimli. (laughs) Nick, will you shut up and answer my question? (laughs) Not very far is the answer. That 17 gallons probably would have lasted them maybe another couple of minutes. I'd be surprised if much more than that. The first suspicion that they had was some kind of leak. But after crawling around in the dry tanks for a while, which I feel bad for that investigator because he was claustrophobic. Oh. Well, I should have sent a different guy. Well, that's, it's just what happened. They found absolutely no evidence of a leak, which left the real and true culprit. The crew took off without enough fuel. About half the fuel they needed to be a little more precise. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I guess I'm a little confused as to why they didn't do checks before they took off. Oh, they did. Now, you might recall that Nick said something about blank fuel gauges. Yes. Because this way of measuring how much fuel is in the tanks was not available, the drip process had to be used. Basically, a drip stick is put in the tank, kind of like how you check the oil in your car, and you get a measurement in centimeters, which is the depth. That value is then converted to liters and then to kilograms. You would then subtract the amount already on board from what would be required to fly to Edmonton per the flight plan, and your end result is how much fuel you need loaded in kilograms, and then that's converted back to liters for the fuel guy, because the fuel trucks work in volume, not weight. Numerous interviews with flight and ground crews determined that both crews contributed to this process in varying capacities in both Montreal and Ottawa. But the interviews were really unclear in that no one really seemed to know who did what during the calculations. Right. It also became quickly evident that no one in Montreal knew how to convert liters to kilograms. Why was this important? Well, everything on previous planes in the airline's history was done in pounds, since so many planes were made in the United States, one of the few remaining countries that, to this day, has not converted to the metric system. I I like the imperial system. (laughs) Because you understand it. Yes, and it makes us smarter. Does it, it, though? Does it? Because it is vastly more complicated. It is vastly more complicated. For Why do we make our lives difficult? Pretty unreasonable reasons. Because we're Americans, and that's and that what makes we... That's okay. At least we don't live in the UK where they use half of both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they have their own. So, Boeing decided that they would be more accommodating to the global community and had made the 767 to be in metric units for fuel. So, ground and flight crews needed to know how to do the metric conversions rather than operate in pounds. To be clear, quote... Neither the maintenance personnel nor the flight crew had had any training or experience in converting dripstick readings in centimeters to liters and then liters to kilograms, end quote. Investigators then went back over the calculations the crews had made and found the error. At some point, someone somewhere calculated the fuel into pounds, not kilograms, and the error was not caught at any level. The crew entered the value into the plane as what the amount should have been if filled correctly, which is why the flight crew thought they still had fuel in the tanks, because the computer showed it. But the true amount in the tanks was about half, because one kilogram is equal to 2.2 pounds. I'm going to read through their calculations and then the correct calculations from the report, because it shows where the error is and how to do it correctly. Isn't one pound 2.2 kilograms? No. No, so it'd be double because they converted it into pounds. One kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So it seemed like they had more fuel on board than... Yeah. Okay, behold. Calculations. So the dripstick readings in Montreal showed 62 and 64 centimeters. This was then converted to 3,758 and 3,924 liters. Together, 7,682 liters. The crews that day then converted, quote-unquote, into kilograms using the specific gravity, which is the inverse of density, for all who care, 
So they multiplied the 7,682 liters by 1.77 and got 13,597 pounds. Pounds. They thought it was kilograms, though. Then they computed that the minimum fuel required was 22,300 kilograms. And with the 13,597 assumed to be kilograms on board, they arrived at 8,703 kilograms needed to be added. Converting that back to liters was 4,916 assumed to be liters. Now, the correct calculation would be to take the 7,682 liters of fuel on board times by 1.77, the specific gravity, but then divide by 2.2, which actually gives you kilograms, which comes out to 6,180 kilograms of fuel on board prior to refueling. When you subtract that from the needed fuel, you get 16,120 kilograms of fuel, or 20,036 liters. Which is a lot That's that needed to be That's four times more than what was actually added. So that whole miscalculation happened in Montreal. While they had a stopover in Ottawa, and the ground crews checked the fuel levels, so they should have caught the problem there, right? And this flight, it turns out, normally refuels at both locations. However, that day they decided to only take on fuel in Montreal. Yep. Well, anyway, it, they didn't fix the problem because they made the same miscalculation in Ottawa. Yep. So the error continued unnoticed. So that whole thing is a cluster. But more importantly, in my mind, a cluster that never should have happened on this plane to begin with. This whole thing happened because they had to do the calculations by hand for the dripstick method because they didn't have operating fuel gauges, right? Well, it turns out that the fuel gauges are on the minimum equipment list, or the MEL. So this plane shouldn't have even taken off, is what you're telling me. Yep. Yeah. What the heck? Do you want Did me they to... just not read the list? Is that determined by Boeing or by Air Canada? It's complicated. So, specifically, what wasn't working were the fuel gauges that were blank, and then one of the two fuel quantity processor channels. Investigators found that the processor channel had not been soldered properly, but you couldn't see that unless you took off the encapsulation around it. So it was just marked and up. Air Canada's minimum equipment list reads, quote, One left or right wing tank fuel gauge may be inoperative, provided A. Fuel quantity and associated tank is determined by measuring stick or by tender uplift after each refueling. B, all pumps for the associated tank must be operative, and C, the flight management computer fuel quantity information is available. Item 2841-2 of Air Canada's MEL relating to fuel quantity processor channels provided. Quote, one may be inoperative provided fuel loading is confirmed by use of fuel measuring stick or by tender uplift after each refueling and flight management computer fuel quantity information is available. End quote. So it's complicated. So it sounds like there's been a lot of information out there. Yep. That because they had, I'm guessing that probably because they just had the the field data available on the computer, they were probably like, oh, it's fine. It's fine, but pretty much, yeah. So Captain Pearson testified that he had said to the maintenance guy in Montreal, "quote We are not legal to operate in this configuration with all of the fuel quantity indicators unserviceable." End quote. At which time he looked at the MEL and the maintenance and flight logs and somehow concluded he could fly as long as they used the drip stick and the flight management computer could be used during the flight. In, hi in his testimony, he admitted that he was wrong in this conclusion. The flight plan said, Aircraft deviations 28412, fuel quantity processor number 2 channel in-op, dip required. Confirming what the captain already knew, and in some ways, confirmation bias helped him use that knowledge to make sense of the blank fuel gauges. He consulted the logbook, which said, Fuel quantity indicator unusable. Suspect processor unit at fault. Part number 284563. Nil stock. Meaning they didn't have anything on site to replace it. The previous day in the logbook said, At service check, found fuel quantity indicator blank. Channel 2 at fault. Fuel quantity to circuit breaker pulled and tagged. Fuel drip required prior to departure. CMEL 28412. So in other words, the captain was aware of the problem, and so was maintenance. So why did he continue with this flight anyway? Well, the flight was dispatched. 
by Air Canada, right? In his mind, he believed that Maintenance Central at Air Canada had an overriding authority regarding the minimum equipment list, and that they had a more comprehensive master MEL to make decisions with. When asked, quote, And yet you were satisfied in your own mind when you read the MEL that it was not legal to operate, he answered, quote, Well, in our MEL, it was not legal to operate. Now, in Air Canada, to my understanding, Maintenance Central are responsible for the MEL for all the technical data on the aircraft, and that the manuals that we have on board are a reduced version, if you will, of what is in Maintenance Central. Maintenance Central are the overriding authority on our MEL, end quote. So, okay, I have a question. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it might be a stupid question, but if maintenance knew, Mm because they have the MEL, right? So... If they knew that those have to be working for the plane to even take off, why did this even leave the maintenance facility with those not working? Do you want me to dive into that? Because yes. that's the thing I talked about. Okay. So there's a more complicated thing going on here. There's two maintenance personnel involved in this situation. There's one days prior to this, when this was originally written up, who went out and wrote up that log that the fuse was pulled. The circuit breaker was pulled. Right. Why he did that is actually a miscommunication. And this is where the MEL was actually legal. Because they were allowed to fly with one of the two processors not working. Right. When he pulled the circuit breaker, it's because he knew that it would send the signal through the other processor. So the fuel gauges worked. When the circuit breaker was in, it kept trying to send the signal through the non-working The non-working processor. So the gauges didn't work. So the gauges didn't work. So he went in there, pulled the fuse, marked it, and said that they need to replace the processor. They didn't have any on hand. Turns out, when they were going to get to Edmonton, they were actually going to replace it with one from another airline. Get there later. But the day of this incident, another maintenance personnel, the captain had drawn attention to this issue, that maintenance personnel went in and had actually popped the circuit breaker back in. But then got distracted by the dripstick situation and forgot to pop it back out. At that point, the airplane was not legal to fly. Captain Pearson went on to testify that the maintenance guy said, quote, Yes, Captain, it is legal to operate. The aircraft has been cleared for dispatch by Maintenance Central, and we have a drip procedure, and we drip the aircraft before refueling. We put on a known uplift, and we drip the aircraft after refueling. Though the maintenance guy has no recollection of this conversation. Probably just one ginormous miscommunication. Yes. We'll talk about that. Investigators determined that whether or not the conversation happened, there were enough other factors to lead the captain to the same conclusion since the plane had been flying with blank gauges for a day and a half. Yep. Yikes. My brain hurts. Yeah. I I spat a bunch of math at you. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) M-E-L. Crap. Shall we break? We shall break and we'll come back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, so we're back. So I want to talk about something that was pretty incredible. And that is the fact that this airplane flew again. Not only did this airplane fly again, it flew again two days later. Which is insane. Yeah. Well, they it helps fixed you it put that fuel fast? In it, so. yes. Well, it turns yeah. out. <laughs> so basically, maintenance personnel worked around the clock. They came out from Winnipeg up to, uh, to Gimli, and they got the airplane back on the nose gear, repaired the minimum things they needed to, and then ferried it and Fluid. fixed the rest. Yeah. When you when you ferry, so ferrying an airplane is actually a formal term in aviation. That is where you fly the airplane for no purpose other than to get it to a maintenance location. Right. It happened with a lot of the Maxes after they were grounded. They had to be ferried to storage facilities. Yes. You couldn't just store them at whatever airport they were at. Right. That means they're not legally being flown for any commercial purposes just... or VFR purposes for fun. Nothing. They have one purpose get it to a specific location for a specific purpose. It's one of the few times an airliner flies under Part 91. Yep, that is correct. So this airplane flew again, and then when it got there to the maintenance 
it was repaired, and then it flew again for another 25 years. Wow. Before it was finally retired. And... Something actually really cool happened with it. So a company, I think they're called Moto Art, took pieces of the fuselage and made luggage tags with them. them That's and, pretty cool. Them and uh, plane tags also did the same thing. You can buy them online for $60. You can have a piece of the Gimli glider. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yep, this airplane flew with Air Canada for its whole life. And it did good. Good for the rest of its life. All things considered. So... We'll talk about recommendations because there's no probable cause or findings. I feel like I made it somewhat clear. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. You ran out of fuel. Yep. Probable Miscalculated. Cause. No fuel. So there is something called the Swiss cheese model, actually, which is where... Right. Yes. So it's... Can we pick a better cheese? I, I, You know, I wish. But the whole idea is basically you've got a hole in your cheese and that hole, you get layers and layers and layers, eventually leads to a larger problem through that whole thing right so it's kind of that's the gist of it. do they know how swiss cheese works <laughs> <laughs> sort of so that's kind of that's kind of the gist but it's it's more of the point is being many things led up to this specific incident it wasn't just the miscalculation it was a much larger portion of miscommunications plus the fuel gauge is not working and the fuse being popped back in and the calculations and, and well, yeah. and the fact so, that they weren't trained to do this specific kind of calculation correct like and then why another thing that was pointed out was that air canada implemented a metric plane into their non-metric fleet and the uh board found that the best solution for this was actually to switch all of air canada over to metric instead of imperial which I don't understand. It seems silly to me, but... I mean, they, that's what their country uses. So yes. Might as well just... Which I understand that, but if the airplanes don't, that causes a bigger problem to me. Man, but I don't know. One of the recommendations, the, the primary one, the very first one they listed, was to standardize their units at the at Air Canada. Can we recommend that to the United States as a whole? <laughs> so we use a standardized unit for everything in aviation, as they do for everything. In Canada now. So that was their primary thing, and that did happen. They standardized. Uh, another big one of them is they wanted to establish a flight safety organization within Canada. Seemed pretty important just to actually have a flight safety organization to side on these things. What do they have now? You know, honestly, I don't know what it's called. They recommend requiring more training for flight crews about calculations as well as minimum equipment lists. This oh. is. They have, the, they have the Transport Canada Civil Aviation. Yes, they had the Civil Aviation Authority at the time. but Well, I'm telling you what they have now. Okay. So, th obviously, the bigger thing is that they needed to make sure that flight crews are trained in doing these calculations and making sure that they do all of them correctly over and over and over again until it's drilled into their head. And then minimum equipment lists, making sure it's well understood, the gravity of the minimum equipment list, and whose authority it is to decide on f final decision to fly. That would be the captain, by the way. Right. In all situations around the world. Yep. The captain is final say in flying an airplane. They recommended more training for maintenance personnel regarding minimum equipment lists and calculations and more knowledge of systems so that they understand when one person does one thing to a system and another maintenance personnel comes in and doesn't fix it but just undoes what the other one did. So, popping the fuse back in, not a good thing. Sounds like a good thing for a maintenance person to understand that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like, usually a good thing. Why did why is this pulled? Right. So, to the defense of the maintenance personnel, brand new airplane. Yes. Pretty hard to know all of the systems when it's brand new. That's fair. So, to some extent, I understand. Especially when you're talking about a complex airplane with a lot of new systems. It's a brand new airplane. So many levels to that. The recommended... Changing fueling procedures with more training, audits, fuel logs, and just all around better understanding and updating of dripsticks. So they were relying too much on this dripstick thing when they were making poor calculations with it. And then they were logging that poorly. And there wasn't consistent training by Air Canada fueling personnel. And then they weren't being audited on any of this work. So all around fueling not great not good i just realized too they probably use the 
numbers that they actually wanted in their weight and balance to the actual numbers that they had. Yep. So they should have noticed a difference in weight performance. Yes. They, they I didn't even extremely light. I didn't even yes. think about that. They yes. should have, yeah, they should have realized the aircraft's Their CG off. is off. On a key thing that I said earlier that caught me off guard when I was reading this, that was another big, like, why <laughs> didn't you notice that? Was that this flight normally gets fuel in, in Montreal and Ottawa, but it didn't do that. Hmm. They, they got fuel in Montreal, and that was it. Yeah, and they fueled enough to get to Edmonton, so... In theory. Well. <laughs> they thought. They, but that was because they ran the numbers, and they thought they had a lot more on board already than they actually yeah. did. So they thought that they already had more to go past Ottawa, and they didn't. So they just loaded enough to make it to Edmonton, they thought. And really what they did was make enough to make it to, to Ottawa. Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the bigger problem there was that the initial calculation was wrong. Yeah. And then from there, all calculations following it were wrong. Calculations which, are important. Which friends. is crazy to me. That there should have been that check there in Ottawa. It should have dawned on them. But the fact that they made the same miscalculation shows how systematic of a problem it was. This just ma- reminds me of like when you sit in math class, you're like, what am I going to ever use this in real life? <laughs> I mean, now we have phones where we can look yeah, up the Yeah, I was going to say, anymore, anymore, this just so, doesn't happen mainly because the computers in the airplane can calculate all of this. They're standardized units. And even if you had to and do it by that, hand, on, just, it's just easier. Yeah, it's easier by hand. But then on top of that, yeah, you just pull up your phone or your electronic flight bag or your iPad yeah. and you just type in... Uh, Kilograms, pounds. Just be like, hey, Google. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got mine, too. How much fuel does this airplane need? Boom. We'll fuel the plane for you. I, I don't know how much Google would know about the specific gravity of the fuel, which is required to calculate. I w- personally... And it probably doesn't, but you can still figure that out easier with a calculator. Personally, I would have just made an Excel sheet where you can plug it in and it automatically calculates it. But yes, that's okay. Me. That's you. Because I got Leo, like, on Excel. I'm sure. Leo does everything on Excel now, and I'm so proud. I'm sure. It's, like, back in 1983, though, like, when kids were like, when am I ever going to use this? I know. Ta-da! Ta-da! But now it's a moot point, because you can just look everything up, but... Yeah. So another big thing that they had an issue with was the Air Canada manuals didn't match Boeing's manuals close enough. There was too many differences. That kind of comes along with the minimum equipment list, right? But that was an issue because also, you know, procedures and systems, those kinds of things. So that was one of the recommendations, just standardizing the manuals to better match Boeing, basically, Ah. since they're the manufacturer. They also recommended a Boeing to make sure that it's just better understood to the airlines what needs to be there, what doesn't need to be there, and how the airplane works. So, in general, they made they recommended improvements to the 767 equipment, i.e. the fuel gauges yeah. and the processor, since the airplane's only 150 hours old and it failed. Well, it sounds like it was manufactured poorly. Yes, so that's kind of what they're saying. <laughs> I thought it was installed in, installed incorrectly. So, one of, else? one of the coils on the processor was not soldered correctly. So it came disconnected, and you couldn't see it because it was encapsulated right. in an insulator. And so... That's we, a manufacturing error yeah. in yeah. that part. And there was no quality control to check that, apparently. Apparently. Um, another one of the things is uh, a pretty general one, they, and a simple one. They recommended avoiding uh, non-flight crew personnel in the cockpit. Yeah, that's why I asked what year this was. I know. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. It's still kind of weird in the 1980s, but it wasn't super unheard of. No, and this was a maintenance personnel. So yeah, I guess I don't have a problem with that because they are knowledgeable about yeah. the aircraft. Well, and they asked him, they were like, what are your thoughts on this? And he was pretty forward with them. He's like, look, either the pump is bad or you're out of fuel. Right. That's literally what he told him. He's like, and as once he saw the second one, he realized he knew they were out of fuel. And he, he even admitted, he was like, once those two lit up, I knew the right ones were going to light up next. He said, he's like, I didn't want to tell the captain at the time, but I knew. The captain was already busy trying to divert the airplane and everything, but he just kind of sat there because he kind of knew what was happening. Right. And he thought he could be helpful in some capacity. And as a maintenance personnel, yeah, sure, probably. (laughs) Even if you don't know the airplane necessarily, if fuel pump's not working, pretty good sign there's no fuel. Yeah. So, I mean, like having someone like that in the cockpit, I don't mind so much. 
Now, unless you are authorized, you cannot go in the cockpit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For obvious reasons. So, well, and then something similar happened with UA-232 in 89, where yeah. they pulled someone into the cockpit. So, and To be fair, some airlines around the world, too, still let maintenance personnel in the cockpit, but they have to be part of the jump seat crew list yeah right. like they have to be, literally be listed as you know person part of the, in the jump seat yeah the person in the jump seat on the manifest yeah so it's kind of a different situation they don't want you just come into the cockpit if you're a passenger on that flight as a person flight attendants can ride in the yeah they can ride seat. jump seat but they have to be listed on right. the, the the manifest manifest is a jump seat well rare. the the part of this that is the other half of that where it's not so great was when we talked about Aeroflot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? So it goes Big both no-no. ways. Like, yeah, I could see having like an extra pilot or a maintenance personnel, but mm-hmm. also don't bring your kids into the cockpit. Well, <laughs> and the, those are not employed by the airline, so it's also Exactly. Different. Yeah. So I mean it goes both ways, but now you can't even do that anyway. So Okay, so there's only a couple more of these. And the next one's really interesting. The recommendation is to improve accident investigations. Yeah, so... (laughs) Never had that one before. Your investigation was bad. (laughs) Fix it. Okay. To be fair... They they didn't use their investigation board that they had. One. Why not? One. Two. They created a board of inquiry, which just seems way more extensive and expensive and problematic. Three... The airplane was only on the ground there for two days. The investigative team didn't have any time to go look at that airplane and look over what really happened. I mean, I'm sure they figured out the fuel thing right away, but it's like there's still so many other extenuating circumstances that they probably would have liked to have understood while the airplane was still sitting where it ended up. Meanwhile, the maintenance personnel are putting everything back together while they're trying to investigate the airplane. Yeah, it's a little not great. It makes it hard. So the Transport Canada's Aircraft Accident Investigation Branch was in place from 1960 to 1984. This crash happened in 83. Right. So they were kind of falling apart. So the they were then succeeded by the Canadian Aviation Safety Board, or the CASB, until 1990, when they were then succeeded by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, which is what is in place now. Yes. The TSB. And they were, their very first investigation was? Swiss Air Flight 111. Oh, hey. Yep. Episode 9, friends. So that was a big thing. And by the way, this airplane had to go through some pretty crazy repairs in very short order. So the other things I didn't talk about was on their landing, they burst two tires and dragged the right engine. Oh. Anytime usually you ground an engine... You're going to bend things. It's yeah, just, they, you, not good. you got structure there. I'm yeah. kind of surprised they even just fixed it. S- to be fair, Winnipeg's not very far away. They didn't have to fly very high or very far. They just put a very select crew on the airplane and flew it. And they probably just replaced the two tires, replaced the landing gear doors. They might have. They might not have even retracted the gear <laughs> from one place to another. They might have just flown it slowly with the gear down. Um, there was a lot of things. A lot of things involved. Uh I can't imagine trying to get that airplane fueled while it was there, though. They had to haul fuel trucks up. Yeah, probably just took fuel trucks from Winnipeg. Yeah. and Non-street legal fuel trucks, probably. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, last recommendation. They recommended improving communication across the board. All facets of this were a breakdown in communication. Whether it be maintenance to the flight crews or maintenance or flight crews to maintenance or understanding of responsibilities or miscommunicating what one maintenance personnel did to another or miscommunicating who's in charge of whose authority it is to take off (laughs) with the MEL and so many things. There's just so much of a breakdown in communication. The primary breakdown in communication they wanted to highlight, though, was... Who needed to do the calculation? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was never, like... Never made clear. Never clear. Final decision? It should be the captain. The captain. Yeah. So they made specific note in the investigation that no one shirked the responsibility. No, but they all did it, and nobody did it right. <laughs> so the, the question at that point is, who messed up? Who do we pin this on? And ultimately, it was Captain Pearson. Which he takes responsibility for, but he kind of took it in stride because he learned a lot, of course. Yeah. And these crews actually, I mean, the thing is, is he's still hailed because he did the one thing nobody ever did in the past. He landed a large airliner 
dead stick, and everybody survived. Yep. That's incredible. So the first officer was later promoted to captain in 1989, and Captain Pearson flew for 10 more years before retiring. Yeah. So the flight crew went on to flag, and they had to petition because their licenses were suspended for a period of time. But they petitioned against the Civil Aviation Authority, and they eventually got their their licenses back, and they were able to go fly. Was it because they messed up the calculation, or just because they crashed the airplane? It's a few things. Because of the calculation, the miscommunications, the lack of training, the misunderstandings. There was a lot of things. They were like, okay, this crew... Probably shouldn't have been flying that airplane at the time. Probably a safety thing. Yeah, it was more of a safety thing at the time because they started to pin this on the captain. (laughs) But the reality is is he didn't know all these things. And that's not his training. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that's not his fault. And that's the reason the petition worked. He didn't know that he was supposed to be final decision on the MEL. Yep. Because Air Canada didn't train that. He didn't know he was supposed to make the calculations because Air Canada didn't have that in place. (laughs) <laughs> also didn't have the proper calculations yes for yep. this airplane because they weren't trained by air canada <laughs> yeah so it's really it's on air canada for it's, not having good enough training yep. ultimately i think they they that's why they pinned it on miscommunication because they really wanted that to be the focus which really boils down to air canada because air canada was in charge of fueling the airplane owning the airplane training the pilots all of it and air canada did none of those things <laughs> um i'm just reading through my notes from the episode we watched there is one more recommendation that i don't think was formally mentioned in the report not really but it was to just keep more spare parts in locations yeah they did mention yeah. that a little bit in the report but it's not a whole lot so to be fair airplanes new and yes i get it but yes you have to build a stock of parts usually and when the airplane comes into service to make sure you just always have it so i guess there was one spare of these fuel processors, part, processors and it didn't work <laughs> Oh. At Air Canada. So wow. so they were, yeah, SOL on that one. But they were literally going to, in Edmonton, they were going to get one of these processors from another airline and install it. They well, just didn't make it there. And it worked with the breaker pulled out because it yes. went through a different channel. To some extent. And that's why the minimum equipment list would have worked. But it's not reliable with only one processor. So right. they Correct. weren't to rely on it. It was just legal. Right. So, I mean, to be fair, it was legal to fly it till they were able to get it to Edmonton, except for the fact that the maintenance personnel pushed the breaker back breaker in. Back in so. Yep. Okay. Well, that was Air Canada Flight 143. Which the number, nobody really ever knows anyways. It's no, just, it's just known the Gimli Glider. as yep. the Gimli Glider. Before we wrap up. Ah, we have the, the listener question. We have a listener question from Jacob. One of our patrons. It's okay that you misspelled my name. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, this is more of a question for Brendan, but I was wondering how he's getting his license. If it's through a college program or if he's going to like an independent flight school. Also, if he doesn't want to answer this part, that's okay. How he's covered the cost of flight school. Thanks in advance and keep up the good work, guys. It's a good question. It is. Um, so I went through an independent flight school. Just because I'm doing this as a hobby, not as a career. I think if you're probably going to go through a college program probably be better for a career career like if you're gonna become a commercial pilot yes right and the way i covered the cost was just living with my parents (laughs) (laughs) pretty much i I basically i saved up enough to where i knew i would be able to pay off the entire thing all at once but of course i knew it would take several months to complete the training so i knew i wouldn't actually lose a whole lot of money so it's kind of like a safety feature yeah yeah. Built so you're still earning money along the way. So yeah, still getting my my paycheck for my job, but I was spending roughly about the same as I was getting for my paycheck. So I didn't really lose or gain any money. In that. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, you still have like regular expenses, but yeah, that's but you still had that safety net that you were like, okay, even if I didn't have this paycheck, I, I could to afford do to do this. this. Right. Yeah. And I know that's not the easiest thing to do because, you know, people like us we want to go flying, but. It's yeah probably the better choice. Of course, that would probably be different if I was going for all my ratings and certificates. And that's fair. Well, yeah, I mean, anytime you add expenses, it becomes difficult, right? Like, me. <laughs> I have expenses, so it's difficult to go fly. But But that's okay. I mean, that's one of those things you take into account is, like, you plan for it and you go fly. 
if you want to do a college program, yes, that's usually it's built into tuition usually, and that's a much bigger <laughs> expense. Well, right. but then you can also get financial aid since it is part of tuition. Right. And eventually a lot of the airlines will also help you pay back some of that tuition. There's a lot of programs now for that kind of stuff. So college programs can be good, but it is it is a lot of time commitment and money. <laughs> money commitment. Yeah, that's that's a big problem being a pilot. Yes. Expensive. So much money, so much time. Yes. So and we can talk about this briefly, but so United Airlines has started the Aviat program, and they just announced this year that they're going to be doing uh, free flight training through your private. Now, that is there's a little bit of a caveat to that, because it's mostly for a few specific groups, and then on top of that, you have to commit afterward, basically. And then, once you make it through your private pilot's license, you, even though that part was free, and you, now you've committed to United Airlines... Then they stick you with a loan for the rest of your flight training. Yeah. Your instrument rating all the way through to your ATP. Um, then they put you into a regional carrier. And then you, so you start there, you earn a little bit of time, and then you go to United. And at United, once you're at United, they start paying back a portion of your tuition and they start helping you with it. And that's good and all. And you don't have to pay on that, that, loan while you're going through all the flight training but the problem i still have with this is it's still a financial burden on the pilot and it's massive you're talking 80 to ninety thousand dollars in debt by the time you start at the airline and you're going to be making not that <laughs> uh, not even close to that well because I mean, before you get to the regionals though you have to do the 1500 hours still yes. so i'll just assume you can just do flu Flight train or doing a low, right, low hour job, which would help cover the cost of that. Right. So I think the program is really good. It's on the right track. The other few problems that I have with it: one, you have to go to Arizona to their flight school, and you have to commit all of your time to doing it. So what about living expenses, things like that? Like you get a job in Arizona part time and hope that that covers everything. I mean it. You know, do you save up and then have those expenses? Like, it's still, some way or another, it's still going to cost that pilot a lot of money and a lot of time, which it is a commitment. And that's kind of the point. I mean, they want you to be committed if you're going to be in the airlines. It is a massive yeah, responsibility. Do, I mean, do I have to prove that to you by giving you $100,000? Like, <laughs> Well, you know, it is a big gamble on the airlines, too. It is. They've got to make they sure they shovel safe. out all this cash. Yeah. Yeah, but you eventually have to pay it back. Right, but they're losing a whole bunch right away. And yeah. they have to keep you roped in because if you just take that training, you could go to another airline. Right. Right. So you sign that commitment where you, you fly with United for X amount of years, and that's a commitment. So in order for them to pay back some of that tuition. So it's there's good and bad to it. And like I said, I think it's on the right track compared to any other program from an airline. It's, it's because they're going to need it. And they did the one thing that I've complained about on this podcast in the past, and they bridged that gap from no time to instrument or instructor rating. Because most programs that will help you progress from there to your ATP start at your instrument or your instructor rating. You have to have one of those in order to be part of the program. United's Aviat program, you can actually start with no time, which is impressive. That is the first I've seen. It's It's... A good step towards making the industry, the career, more accessible. Yes. And I can agree with that. Under so. a select set of circumstances. So there's the really long answer to your question, Jacob. <laughs> Independent. Live with your parents. Live with your parents. <laughs> some, well, some people, like me, I still have to pay rent to my mom, even though I live with them. Convince them not to pay rent, because they're your family. Yeah, well, <laughs> some people can't do that. Nick and I did that until our home lives became toxic. So we're like, we're moving out. Goodbye. I think it's weird that you guys have to pay rent. We only do because we are over the age of 21 and still live with my mom. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. Check out the uh, listener episode. Remember, we're doing weather stories and your favorite stories and whatever stories. Can we shout out Lee's favorite stories? 
if you want to. If you really favorite want to... stories. What's your least favorite story? I don't know. Probably some random trip that went super fine. Not great. <laughs> uh, and then thank you to all our patrons, as always, for contributing. And stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you guys next time. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.